is decertification a solution to the police abuse problem? Welcome to the Last Negroes at Harvard, podcast number six. There were 18 of us. We are now pushing 80. We were in the Harvard class of 1963. I'm Kent Garrett. This episode is about police decertification. Our guest is Roger Goldman, St. Louis University School of Law Professor Emeritus and one of our classmates. Also with me are Fred Easter, Jerry Secundi, John Woodford, George Jones, and Mason Morphin. Fred, how are you and uh, what, where are you calling from? Doing well, Ken. Um, I am in Prior Lake, Minnesota, a suburb of maybe third ring suburb south and west of downtown Minneapolis. And um, it's going to hit 80 today, and we have fully blue skies. That's good. Jerry, how are you? Where are you calling from? How was your week? Uh, it's been a great week, although very hot. I'm in Pasadena, California, right outside of Los Angeles. It was 100 yesterday, and it's supposed to be 102 today. So we are hunkering down inside with air conditioning. Jesus. Good. How about you, uh, John? I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's just uh, maybe it's about 80, and maybe it's going to rain today. They don't know, but it's pretty pleasant weather. Well, that's good. We're sending you rain from last night. Okay. <laughs> we need it. And how about you, George? What are you up to? I'm in Atlanta. Been working on a science project, trying to continue to stay safe. Mason Morpin uh, is on the line with us. I'm doing fine. Good. I just got my uh, three grandchildren out of the house after a six-week stay, so I'm just... Oh, good, good, good. And our guest today is Roger Goldman, and he's the first guest we've had from the class. And uh, how are you? How many, how many of us did you know from uh, Harvard? Been in touch well, with. let's see. I, I definitely knew John because he was a good friend of my roommate, uh, Steve Felson. Uh-huh. Uh, my, some of you may remember Steve. We were in a rock and roll band called the uh, Maniacs. Gordy yeah, Maniacs. Gordy Main and the Maniacs. <laughs> some of you may have seen us. And what was your career path after Harvard? What did you do? Tell us about your life. Okay, up to so, this so after Harvard, you remember the Vietnam War was sort of going on? And mm-hmm. I was actually entered VISTA. You remember VISTA, Volunteers yeah. Service to America? Yeah, yeah. And was the first person drafted out of VISTA. Wow. Oh, oh and, boy. Uh, so I got it uh, mainly because my draft board thought it was more important for me to be in the jungles of Vietnam than in Washington, uh-huh. D.C., where I was a social worker, even though I was a lawyer. I uh-huh. graduated from law school at the time. So after VISTA and the Army, um, I then... Uh, some of you, if any, are any of you lawyers, you might yes. remember. Okay. Lawyer. Okay. Well, you might remember there was a program called the Reginald Heber Smith Community Legal Fellow Program. Probably the most famous person in that program was a fellow named Jerry Rivers, a.k.a. Geraldo Rivera. Oh. Yeah. He, oh. he doesn't admit that. Look it up online. I don't think he, he wants to admit that. Uh, and we, I went to Penn Law School and, uh, and Penn uh, had a great law professor there named Tony Amsterdam. Some of you may know his death penalty work. And uh, he was my professor. And I ended up in this Reggie program. That's what they called it. Reginald Heber Smith was the first of the pro bono lawyers, either Boston or Philadelphia, I'm not sure. But they named this program after him. 
And then <clears throat> the next few years after it was at Penn, it then went to Howard. Um, it's no longer in business, but many, many people who were in teaching like me were former Reggies. That is, we were assigned to a legal aid program. I was assigned to the one in St. Louis. And uh, after two years there, it was a two years program. Um, I then was asked to teach uh, at St. Louis University. So I started teaching in 71, got emeritus professorship in, uh, in 2014. At the wow. same time, uh, um, um, we had the problems in, Fort, in Ferguson, you know, with Darren Wilson and Michael oh, Brown. And that's when uh, the national media started getting interested in my work on, on licensing and decertifying bad cops. Uh, well, tell us about that work and how did it get started? I know you said there were incidents in 1970 that in, in uh... yeah, yeah, the local newspaper, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, had a series of articles about a cop who would, um, among other things, play Russian roulette with suspects at a small department in St. Louis. And uh, so he trained his patrolman on, on you know, Russian roulette uh, because the one time he did it in front of them, the gun didn't go off, but the kid confessed. The next time these patrolmen did it in his, uh, not in his presence, and they shot and killed a mentally challenged suspect who was thought to suspect of trying to cash a $80 stolen um, cashier's check. Mm -hmm. But that's just the beginning of the story, because what happened was he was fired, this guy, then ended up working at an even smaller department. I don't know where it is where you all are from, but we have a terrible problem of underfunded, under-resourced departments, 90 tiny municipal police departments in St. Louis County. You can imagine the quality of the officers who are going to work there. Mm -hmm. Many of them were fired from the St. Louis uh, Police Department. Um, and in fact, the person, uh, so sort of fast forward, we finally got a law passed in Missouri that would decertify cops. But it wouldn't have happened but for my experience um, following what happened in the Post-Dispatch with this guy getting fired but then getting hired again, where by an even smaller department, he comes back to Maplewood, which is the department he started at. He's been, he only has a part-time job with this tiny department. And he then sees an African-American sitting in his car, assuming he's going to hotwire it and steal it. And he says, I'm a cop at this part-time place. Get mm -hmm. out of the car. He shoots him in the back and kills him. So basically, mm -hmm. two deaths were really because of this terrible uh, lieutenant. And I couldn't believe it. I was teaching criminal procedure at St. Louis U, and uh, nobody ever talked about, uh, in fact, most law schools uh, don't even talk about, and when they talk about police misconduct, this idea of decertifying a police officer, which means once you've done something bad, we got to get rid of you, just like we do that for every other occupation. But, like for lawyers. And, and for lawyers, and every profession you could think of. So I can see some of you from states, uh, well, who's, who's from California? You do not have this process. Okay, Jerry. So I just was called by the ACLU of uh, uh, Southern California. They've got a bill introduced. But the states that don't have this ability, even today, to decertify are California, Hawaii, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. And guess what they all have in common? Very blue progressive states, because the police unions are so powerful, they have mm -hmm. been able to uh, stop any effort to do this you know, obvious to me, common sense uh, decertification. But we've come a long way because now we only have five states that don't have this ability. Uh, but in recent weeks, including California and Massachusetts, another state, in fact, at all my reunions that I've been going to in, in Boston at Harvard, 
I made it a point to talk to people in Massachusetts to get this decertification power. The governor just introduced a bill and so did a couple of state reps. So I think Massachusetts, after all these years, uh, I think by the end of the legislative session should have decertification. Minnesota is one of the weakest laws in the country. You might recall the officer named Chauvin, who- Yeah, I recall. Code, uh, he had at least 10 or 12 alleged incidents. Uh, we're not exactly sure what the misconduct was, but because Minnesota's law is so weak, uh, what makes a law weak is one that only decertifies if you've been convicted of a crime, either a felony or misdemeanor. Now think about any other profession, doctors, lawyers, you name it, you're gonna be, you're gonna lose your license for things short of being convicted of a crime. So uh, one of my pitches when I talk to these states, in fact, I'm talking to Indiana tomorrow, they uh, only have decertification for conviction of a crime. I say, no, can you imagine a lawyer, a doctor, whatever, only being able to be disbarred or lose your license if you've been convicted of a crime? Of course not. So my pitch is always to make sure that the conduct itself, you know, misconduct, whether you've been convicted or not, uh, can lead to decertification. I've been working on this for 40 years, wow. uh, all because of that incident that I started telling you about. Roger, just out of curiosity, living in California, and I'm admitted to the bar in California, Illinois, and D.C., and thank goodness I have not been decertified at this point anyway. Okay. But what is the argument from the police unions? Why they are so resistant to this? So here's the story in California. And what's unique uh, about California is, Jerry, that it is the only state that once had the ability to decertify. But then you had a governor named Gray Davis. And the union, the, I think it's called the LA Police Protective Association, put such... Uh, resistance on Gray Davis saying, you've got to take away our power. But it was so limited, Jerry, it was only if you've been convicted of a felony, and that's the only ground you have to be decertified. And yet the union was able to stop that. Now, you still can't be a cop if you've been convicted of felony in, in California, but you're not technically decertified. It has the same effect. So, but now the good news is that unions, including in California, have finally realized, I think after George Floyd, that this is crazy. And if we decertify for every other profession, how can we not? So I'll be very interested to see if they oppose this bill uh, that has been introduced in the legislature uh, now, because they're talking about, at least on this issue, uh, being supportive. And I should mention that, uh, that Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Rhode Island, the other states that don't have it, are currently having pressure to uh, get decertification. And states like, are any of you in Michigan now? So Michigan, yeah. So John, Michigan has uh, their, I think it was Governor Whitmer who said, we need to strengthen our law too, because it used to be, I think it may still be, only if you've been convicted of a crime. Yeah. So so keep your eye on that, uh, on what happens in Michigan. And I'm hopeful sometimes that- Sometimes you say felony, and sometimes you say crime. Yeah, okay. So, so what I'm trying to distinguish between is, the uh, two-thirds of the states that decertify require you to be convicted of a crime, um, either felony or in some states. Uh, any of you in Illinois? Illinois requires uh, a, a conviction of certain misdemeanors, um, and they're just kind of arbitrary, the ones they are. Like if you run a brothel, that's grounds for decertification. But if you beat the shit out of somebody, that isn't. Uh, mm. So I'm working with folks at the University of Chicago to strengthen 
Illinois law. So I spend my time most days trying to either get a state to pass a law or get them to strengthen their very weak laws. That's mm -hmm. really my occupation. Well, like in terms of, let's say, the big picture, I mean, in terms of big picture of police uh, brutality and police misconduct, I mean, would George Floyd not have happened if uh, this had been nationwide or? Yeah, or, or if Minnesota had a stronger law, again, we don't exactly know what George Floyd had done in those 12 incidents where there are complaints about him. I'd love to know what Derek Chauvin had done. Chauvin. 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 You got it right. Chauvin. Sorry, Chauvin. Uh, uh, and, uh, and it would be great to know that. I've been in touch, and Minnesota's talking about strengthening their laws too. Really, what tends to happen is like the case that got me started, that Russian roulette guy, usually states start to get interested in this when something horrific like that happens. And mm -hmm. that's why George Floyd is what's motivated these states that are now considering to, uh, for the first time, either get the law or to uh, strengthen it. Let's say if a, a policeman gets fired in one district or one city, yeah. and when he applies to, for a job in another city, don't they do some sort of background check or something? Or Okay, I, I was hoping you'd ask that question. Do you all remember this uh, young boy, African-American boy, in Cleveland named Tamir Rice? Tamir Rice, yeah. <laughs> He was pointing a toy gun uh, mm -hmm. at uh, an officer named Timothy Lohman. And to get to your question, uh, Fred, about, Tim, uh, about don't they check, Cleveland never bothered to check with Independence, Ohio. It must be a neighboring community. Because if, you, if they'd have checked and the record was available, written in this guy, Timothy Lohman, who shot and killed Tamir Rice, was that he, was he resigned under fire because among other things, he would weep on the firing range. So in, in practice, you know, when you do target practice as a cop in training, he'd start to cry when he'd shoot at the target. Well, you can imagine how, you? how he'd be if somebody's pointing a gun at him, even if it's a toy gun, and they never checked and they had like a $6 million settlement and they never checked. So one of the things I'm pushing for is not just decertify, but we have got to make these state's laws require you to check and require the, the, the department he's coming from to tell you the truth. One of the advantages of this uh, uh, approach compared to what I learned in law school and what most people still learn because it's not taught uh, this decertification, uh, we've been trained in law school uh, to think that only the U.S. Supreme Court can handle police misconduct. But the fact is 30,000 cops have been decertified and they're on a national decertification index so that if you were to leave one state to go to another, that is available to hiring departments to check. Now, I don't think that's enough. I think we need the federal government to have what amounts to a database that would include um, decertified officers, among other things. So, any of you in the medical profession might know that there's something that the feds established called the National Practitioner Data Bank. So if you are a healthcare professional, you know, licensed in, in anesthesiology, pediatrics, nursing, you name it, and you have lost your license, that goes onto a federal database. And I'd recommend it. Some of you may recall, Obama set up a, a task force on 21st century policing. And one of the recommendations was a citation to an article I wrote for Police Chief Magazine that said, the feds need to cooperate with this, this, this national decertification index that's run cooperatively among the states. And, uh, but, you know, the current administration hasn't up till now been that interested in implementing anything Obama's done. 
to say the least. Uh, but to me, this makes a lot of sense uh, that you have a data bank. And I, by the way, I wouldn't limit it just to cops because corrections officers are now being decertified too. And in mm -hmm. fact, uh, in Florida, three times the number of corrections officers were decertified the last time there was a survey compared to law enforcement officers. You know, you know that corrections officers can do awful things, uh, especially the female prisoners and drugs for sex and all that sort of thing. So I'm a big fan of, of increasing who's covered, not just police officers in this approach. Roger, as the second city wants that kind of record. If you've been brutal, then that's terrific. That may be what they're looking for. Well, that may be the way to In the sense that you're, you're making the assumption that this new, this other city will not uh, hire a cop even though he's been decertified, right? right. Yeah, that they can still do it. Just like if you've been disbarred in one state, you can be rehired. Now, I think Cleveland wouldn't have hired, but that cop I started off with, you know, that chief who hired the fellow who'd been involved in the Russian roulette, he knew what the guy had done at that previous department, but he hired him anyway. And this really gets to another problem. We have way too many small police departments in this country, 18,000 state and local. Check your state, you can get a total. We have many police departments in Missouri, and I'm sure in many of your states, with one person. What kind of management are you gonna get? And if you're a bad chief, you're gonna turn yourself in? Not, not necessarily. So one of the things I'm really getting interested in is not just decertifying individual cops, but decertifying somehow entire departments. And Utah. Let me just let me add a thing, if I may. Sure. In, in Minnesota, in many towns and, and counties, there is no police department. But state law requires that sheriffs serve every county. Yeah. And so there are many places in Minnesota where it's the sheriff that's going to pull you over for speeding or or whatever uh, wrongdoing you are alleged to have committed. It may be that we should decertify sheriffs as well when they are abusive. Yeah, sometimes sheriffs, are because they're constitutionally elected officers, aren't subject to certification and decertification. And that brings up another point. Uh, who is covered? In some states, a lot in the Midwest, state troopers are not subject to decertification. It must be historical that only the municipal police are, which is nuts, because if you're going to, by the way, sexual misconduct is a very, very common reason for decertification. The AP called me right after Ferguson and uh, asked me some questions about what was going on there. And I said, why don't you do a series on the number of cops decertified for sexual misconduct? And in 2014, a thousand cops over a five-year period had been decertified. And the most outrageous were decertification for sex with minors, typically trafficked teens, teenagers, you know, prostitutes, who the cop thought would never be believed. And also, even as horrendous, uh, um, these were cop cops who had sex with the victims of a crime. A woman calls 9-11, the cop comes over, and in consoling her, has sex with her. Jesus. Many cases like that. It's a little depressing what I do in this work, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I imagine, though, that there could be liability if those who are hiring people knowingly, maybe even unknowingly, if, if something could happen to them in some punishment or liability to the jurisdiction that happened to knowingly hire someone right. to be certified, yeah. then they would have an incentive not to hire them. If yeah, but were 
That makes sense, John, and I think you're probably right. But some of these departments are so hard up for cops, they, they will knowingly hire the, like these cops hired in Missouri who'd been fired or resigned under fire from the St. Louis City. They were the ones populating these little municipalities out in St. Louis County. By the way, Pennsylvania has a lot around Pittsburgh, but look in your communities. And uh, these are the great cases because, of, by the way, the term that used to be used for these cops who moved from place to place was gypsy cop. No longer, you, don't, you won't hear that term anymore. Hmm. Uh, uh, then there was an interesting anecdote that sort of a, the, the, that speaks to your point, Roger, about departments. There was a little community, there is a little community here in suburban Atlanta that used to be a speed trap. And there was a guy who owned a business that supplied firewood. As a matter of fact, I used to buy my firewood from him. And his lot was an eyesore. It really was. Even I admit that. But he wasn't doing anything, anything illegal. But the police in this little community, because of, the, of, his, of the way he had his, his, his business set up, would harass him by, by traffic, by, by stopping him for, for alleged speeding violations. Well, speed traps are against the law in Georgia. So he sued them and he won. And in order to pay him, the police department had to close down. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's it. By the way, the, those of you who remember Ferguson, all those demonstrations, it wasn't just what happened to Michael Brown, but the people in those communities of North St. Louis uh, County were, have been harassed that same way. They're picked up on you, grass is too long. Uh, you know, you're speeding. And what's tragic is they, they, when they make up their city budget, they have at least 50%, in one case, 80% of the anticipated budget was from traffic and minor fines. So mm -hmm. it was really, uh, you know, were, they were predators on the community, largely African-American communities. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, that is really, and again, they need those people, they're really ATM machines for the, for the city. Uh, mm -hmm. now, that doesn't mean you're not gonna have problems in big departments, but these small departments uh, really tend to be the ones who pick up these last chance agencies. How has it broken down in terms of racial uh, profiles of, of the cops? Have you done anything on that? Well, um, one of the things that I'm an advocate for is getting some, uh, by, by the way, you're now one of the few people who've ever heard of decertification. It's sort of an unknown, you know, big kept secret. Nobody really thinks of this for cops for some reason. We think about certifying and decertifying every other profession. But again, only recently have we thought about that for cops as well. And in terms of the most common reasons for decertification, uh, sexual misconduct seems to be the most common one. Excessive force is not that easy to prove. Now, I haven't done the research because, you know, typically what happens, it's hard to convict a cop uh, unless the beating is gratuitous. You know, I, I think in the George Floyd case, that's one thing. But usually, like with Michael Brown, the, the cop will say, well, he reached for a gun or he reached in my pocket. And it's no easier for a post board, by the way, that's the name, Peace Officer Stands and Training Board that does the hearings to decertify these cops. It's no easier for them to get when there's, the cop said, I was afraid, uh, the victim is often not there, sometimes he's been killed. Uh, so uh, I, I, I wouldn't, I'd love to see the empiricists get into that and try to break down what percentage of the cases are excessive force, what racial, by the way, you might be interested um, uh, Arizona publishes an integrity bulletin, and in a paragraph, they say why it is they've decertified officers. Uh, 
And I, and I just went through those bulletins over a year period and found many that involved racial comments or racial actions. So for example, uh, a, a, a Pakistani Uber driver, when he was arrested, was called a raghead. You know, it's similar kinds of comments like that. Uh, one of the things I didn't mention, notice I've only talked about state officers, you know, state, local, county police, but why wouldn't we want to do this with federal officers? Uh, so I've been an advocate that if we're certifying and decertifying state law enforcement officers, why wouldn't we want to do it? Well, the good news is two departments, the Department of Defense for its military police and civilian police, and now uh, you heard about um, in, in the park across Lafayette Park, remember right. the demonstration? Those well, people work for the National Park Service and they have a lot of law enforcement officers. And so the National Park Service is now certifying and decertifying officers too. But I think we need to do it for all, on border patrol is particularly bad because mm -hmm. you know women come across the border and you know those border patrol people will have sex with them. Who's gonna believe them? Uh, so I've been an advocate to try to get all federal officers uh, uh, done. And does any of you remember the name Charles Grainer? Remember Abu Ghraib? There was a guy who would pile up bodies. Well, so he got court-martialed, only court-martialed after Abu Ghraib. But what you probably don't know is when he was a, a, a corrections officer in Pennsylvania, he was alleged to have done similar things there. How did he ever get drafted and become an MP? And just think how things might have been different if we had a data bank that would attract that kind of misbehavior and stopped him from going to Abu Ghraib. You mean now there's no such data bank? There, the, the data bank only includes uh, uh, the off state, oh. state and local ones. And, right. and what I'd recommended to, uh, to the Obama task force, what they adopt is let's include all officers, including mm -hmm. corrections officers, because that's really what this guy Charles Grainer was. Uh, are any of uh, these activist groups that are just saying defund, if some of them would be a little bit more uh, practical and and precise about it, they could call for decertification and have something concrete to focus on. I, I agree, yeah, but you know, sometimes- do, do any of them contact? I mean, are you able to suggest it to anyone? Would anyone be able to? Well, the, the folks have really gotten interested in this are, one of the reasons I've enjoyed this work, it kind of reminds me of, uh, of the 60s, you know, when going down south and doing voter registration because this can bring people who normally don't agree on anything. So I've gotten the ACLU to push this in certain states. Mm. And I, so half the time I speak to activist groups like NAACP and ACLU, uh, Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, and then the other time I'm speaking to law enforcement groups. When I speak to law enforcement groups, they are very sympathetic, the chiefs and the sheriffs. In fact, tomorrow I'm on Monday, I'm speaking to a bunch of sheriffs in Indiana who are dismayed that they have such a weak law. And then I also speak to ACLU because to the ACLU, I say, look, do you want this guy who, you know, committed, you know, who did the terrible incident in St. Louis with the Russian roulette going to another community? And to the, ACE, and to the police groups, I say, what profession doesn't have a way to get rid of these bad, uh, you know, bad professionals? So I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth to different groups, but I'd like to bring groups like that together. Mm -hmm. And this is the one area you can do it because it's not that radical, really, this proposal. In fact, my wife keeps saying, it's so obvious. How come it's taking you 40 years? <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you attribute all of 
your uh, success and, uh, and how do you deal with the pressure? I mean, did Harvard prepare you for that or what? Did, did what prepare me? Harvard, Harvard. Oh, what was it? Yeah, playing with playing in that rock and roll band with Felsen, I think. Helped. Yeah. <laughs> what was your instrument? Uh, I played the electric piano. Felsen had an aunt who sent us an electric piano. By the time I graduated, only one key worked. You know, these keys were really... And by the way, we did uh, have a uh, record published uh, right at the pictures on... The, uh, I don't think it was Gordy Main. I can't even remember the name of Gordy Main and the Maniacs. It was in front of the Lampoon building. Right, I have that. I have that album. You have that album? Yeah. And we used to practice in Kirkland House. And I'll never remember, uh, forget when Master Taylor... I don't think we call them masters anymore, but we did on our uh, day. Yes, that's he true. He was on sabbatical one year, and he heard us play. You know, this was wild. He couldn't believe that Kirkland House was turned into this den of iniquity. <laughs> <laughs> Roger, what, what role does racism in your view play in all of this? I mean, what's your sense of that? Yeah, well, as I say, the, uh, that, the, those, those cases that I pulled out from the uh, Arizona there was many, many incidents of, uh, of just outright racism. Uh, uh, so, you know, that's probably a pretty small sample. There's about 40 cases that I found. I'm sure there are many, many others. Um, and uh, certainly in terms of the, uh, of, you know, what we've seen with Michael Brown and others, uh, I think it plays a part. Uh, it's one of the things that's hard to do, though, is, is uh, if it's excessive force and is what happened with, you know, Darren Wilson and Michael Brown. It, was it racism that caused him to shoot him? Was it uh, pulling a gun? Uh, so that's why it's hard in these excessive force cases to sort of separate, was he really afraid or not? By the way, the federal government, you know, has a, in the, in the Department of Justice, has a section that's called the criminal uh, section, which prosecutes bad cops for excessive force cases. Remember um, the guy Pantaleo uh, killed in, uh, uh, in New York. Remember that guy's name? He was overweight and selling cigarettes. Right. So yes. Eric Garner. Yeah. Eric Garner. Eric okay. Garner, so, right. so, you know, well, quote, he struggled. Well, you mm. know, you shouldn't be able to kill him, but yeah. it's hard to get convictions. It, it, I mean, as I said, so the best case is if there's no resistance, no flight, uh, and... And that's why I think the George Floyd case will be interesting to see what happens there, because that really seemed to be a, a no resistance case. Can being a member of a uh, white hate group or any other kind of hate group be a grounds for decertification? Well, what they've done now is, is uh, fired and then decertified uh, officers who I think are putting Facebook expressions out there. You know, it kind of runs into free speech stuff, but mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, I haven't followed that closely, but I know that there has been some terminations. Whether there have been decertifications for it, I don't know. Mm. They, I think there could be based on those cases I've seen from Arizona. But there's a huge difference among the states on what the decertification is for. By the way, New York is the only state that decertifies, but not because there's a law that's been passed. An agency just passed a regulation, but it's limited to only if you're fired for cause. And that's something else I should mention. I don't think you need to be fired before you can be decertified because you could do something that the chief keeps you on because he likes you. That's the conduct we should focus on, not whether you're fired or not. Mm -hmm. So, uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, I probably get a little too much into the weeds, but when you work on something 40 years, it's hard not to. All right, anybody, any more questions? Any, anybody? No. Have 
Well, this well, is listen, really I'm, great. I, I was flattered to be the first classmates invited. Exactly. Yeah, well, this is certainly, you're, you're certainly been a stalwart champion for the good, you know? Yeah. <laughs> stalwart champion for the good. Indeed, that sums up the life work of our classmate, Roger Goldman. I'm Kent Garrett. Thank you for joining us. And you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.